Well, good morning, church. I didn't try this at 9.30, but I feel like trying it now. Can we just say this? Buenos dias. Oh, let's try it one more time. Sounds beautiful. Buenos dias. Dios los bendiga. Amen. We'll work on that one for next time. Um, it is such a joy to be here this morning. Um, we have already enjoyed uh, the first service with y'all, and um, what an incredible um, opportunity to, uh, to not just... Uh, be with you, which is just amazing, but due to the busyness of our Sunday and weekly responsibilities, my wife and I rarely get uh, the opportunities to just kind of partake with the congregation and just worship the Lord, much less do it back-to-back services on a Sunday. So, um, worship team, thank you just so much for everything you guys do. Thank you for um, breaking into that amazing multilingual worship set. Guys, you are truly blessed with a wonderful worship team. And, and it's something I share with our, our congregation. As, as you know, my name is Ricky Ruiz, and I have the privilege of shepherding um, the Marlin Espanol congregation on the Longview campus. And um, the church looks more like heaven when we're inclusive of other languages and other uh, cultures. And so not just Spanish, um, but whenever we see that inclusivity, it reminds us that we're not the only ones, that the church is composed of so much more than just a single culture. And so, but it all takes a step back when we come together because then heaven's culture is the one that should take preeminence in everything that we do. Amen? So it is a joy to be here. My wife is here and more than just my support, but um, I look at her every time I say a couple of things and it's through her eyes that I know if I should just keep on going or, or if I said something I should probably fix. Um, but uh, it, we're just equally just pleased um, to be here this morning. So this morning I have the, the, the responsibility um, of continuing on the series that we've been doing for the last few weeks. So I invite you to just grab your copy of the word. Um, today's verse is not very long. It's just four words. But we will be jumping a little bit across some passages to better understand the context of what we're going to be looking at today. Um, last week, you had the, just the, the magnificent opportunity to hear from Pastor Greg Zachary share some wonderful truths um, from this very platform. And, and I love the way that he kind of just uh, did an overview of the structure of uh, the series thus far. Because uh, when we look at the commandments, commandments starting with one, at least the first three, uh, we, we see just this strictly Godward focus. And, and, and that means that it focuses exclusively on God with man. Uh, number one that we saw is no other gods, have no other gods before me. Number two, don't make images. Uh, we're going to look actually at that as part of our commandment today. Uh, number three, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But once it gets into number four, we see a transition. We're obviously still God-centered, but it begins to turn towards man. Remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. And then it tackles family on commandment number five, to honor your father and mother. And now here we find ourselves today. But it all flows out of the holiness of God and the righteousness of God. So we find ourselves today here in this very short verse that I'm just going to read. And it says this, 
depending on your translation, it could either say you shall not kill, or I believe in most of the translations that we have in here, which is rightly um, translated to you shall not murder. And this is a, a commandment that I believe it's probably one of the most well-known uh, people within the church and people outside the church. I believe if you stop anybody outside uh, in the streets and ask them um, to name uh, at least one commandment, I believe that this is one that everybody kind of tends to respond with. And so when, when you look at that, when you consider this, we, we want to be able to truly understand what this commandment really means in our lives today. When we consider that word murder, um, it, it's a strong word. And by nature is something that's naturally abhorrent to everyone. Uh, we see that even all human societies, whether uh, those that are based on non-Christian, atheistic, naturalistic beliefs, uh, even those who reject the very idea of God and deny that there's even any any spiritual basis for uh, any kind of moral principles, um, they still regard murder as just grossly wrong and immoral and wicked. It's a sin that finds universal condemnation in pretty much every civilized society. And because of that, we tend to think of murder as one of the most heinous and serious offenses anyone could ever commit. And the seriousness of it is reflected even in our laws and laws in other countries that the penalties of murder are always the more severe penalties. And because of that, we've gotten to this, this created this stigma that um, if you're willing and you're able to murder, you're pretty much someone who could do anything to destroy human life. And so I, I don't know about you, but, but as, as I've been trying to catch up on these series and, and, and just uh, uh, be a part of them, um, there, there's been something about this that's been eye-opening and even sometimes hard to hear. I don't know if I'm the only one in the room who has felt that way, but, but I, have, I have to admit it's, it was difficult to prepare. It was difficult to, to, um, to really go through it because this is some extremely convicting stuff. And, and as I've listened, I've realized that I am guilty of breaking every single commandment we've studied so far. And I, I think I'm not the only one in the room who feels that way. And so some of you, um, and I know I felt that way, probably come this morning thinking that you were probably going to be able to breathe a little easier this morning. And so um, I just want to tell you that if that's what you're thinking, don't just relax just yet. Um, because we're going to be hitting on quite a few things here. And one of the main things is the fact that this commandment, just like all the others, is extremely broad and that it's not just enough just to obey the letter of the law. We have to obey the spirit of it as well. And, and, and if we're held to the standard Christ himself applied to the commandments, um, then all of us have been guilty of violating even the sixth commandment many times. In fact, when we look at James chapter 2, verse 10, it says this, it says, Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, 
is guilty of what? Of offending all of them. And so if this commandment were the only commandment God ever gave, knowing that he judges us by the spirit of the law and not just the letter of it, we would still be under condemnation and worthy of everlasting punishment. Just as much as any of the other commandments that we have looked at so far. Because they're all interconnected. If, if you disobey one, James says here that you become guilty of all because all the commandments teach just one principle. And we were able to even see some of it in that wonderful, powerful verse that was read of Romans 12. And what is that principle? Is the principle of love. Loving your neighbor with great affection. And if your love is imperfect in any respect, you ultimately violate the moral law of God at every point. So we're going to see this morning why this is true and in what context. I want you to understand the depth. I want you to understand the breadth of this law. Because it goes far beyond just the mere literal meanings of the words. And, and, and I, I don't want you to miss this today because when this law was written and even throughout the generations after that, those who had a love for the law could see the richness of its meaning. But those who were content to do just the minimum required by it missed the real meaning. So I don't want us to miss this. In fact, this is the very theme of uh, the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus was saying, you who are looking at the law and just the letter of the law and not seeing the, the underlying moral principles, you're, you're missing the meaning of it and it's not doing you any good. And so as we study it, I want to give you just a few things to think about, to write down. Hopefully you're taking notes this morning. But I want to start with the principle and the reason of the six commandments. This is going to be just something deep. Ready? Uh, it forbids the act of murder. And I know that uh, I want to explain because it, that's not necessarily as obvious and as clear as you might think. See, we, we've grown probably um, that mean with different interpretations that say, thou shall not kill. And maybe because of that broad uh, approach to it, we have kind of uh, generalized on what this commandment is really talking about. If you have a translation today that actually says you shall not murder, that is actually the right interpretation of this passage of these four words. And so in the Hebrew as well as in English, there is a distinction between kill and murder. And as opposed to killing, murder is this, is the taking of life without legal justification or moral justification. Is the taking of life without legal justification or moral justification. And this commandment is, is probably the most commonly misunderstood and misinterpreted of all the commandments. When we look at that word that's translated kill in, in Exodus 20, verse 13, in the Hebrew, it's the word rasa. And, and it is never used for any purpose other than to describe literally the word manslaying. And so its common meaning is murder. In every context it's used, it means murder. 
Um, and we see it, for example, uh, in Numbers 35, verse 30, where it describes that the penalty that is, this, that is required by the law against murdering someone is usually death. Look at what Numbers 35, verse 30, I'll just read it for you. It says, whosoever kills any person, the murderer, there's that word, ratzak, the murderer shall be put to death. Same word. So translate it literally, it says the murderer shall be murdered. Strong words. See, that's the penalty of murder. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. And in that very verse, we see the penalty that God himself prescribes against the murderer. He is to be put to death. And I want you to understand that this is a principle that wasn't just instituted in Exodus 20, it actually goes all the way back to the days of Noah, Genesis 9, 6, from where we get this interpretation of it. Because when God established the principle, he outlines it in Genesis 9, 6. And this is what it says. It says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Now let's just stop right there. Because when we read the next part, it helps us to understand the reason why it prohibits murder. It says, for God made man in his own image. The reason that we do not murder, the reason for this hinges solely on the beginning of creation. The reason human life is not to be taken through the act of murder is because every person bears the creator's image. That's the first and most important reason for it this morning. Man and woman created, were created to bear the likeness of their maker. Look at Genesis 1.26. We know this by heart already. It says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And when we look at that word, a Hebrew word for image, slelem, comes from a root that really talks about carving. And what it's saying is that that same word that, that's, using, that's used there for carving, it's actually the same one it uses at the beginning of Exodus 20, verse 40, where it, it talks about making graven images. And that's what he's actually using, that same word, suggesting that God was, in essence, the pattern for the personhood of man. And that is not true of any other created thing. The reason that we do not murder, first of all, is because all human beings are created in the image of God. We are bearers of the image of God. And see, we are guilty sometimes of taking that slider, right, and, 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 and moving it according to how we feel about somebody. We may not go all the way to one side, but we are guilty of sliding it based on our opinion about somebody, based maybe on, on our own uh, political um, 
affiliations, maybe based on uh, how we're feeling at the moment. But I want, you to, I want you to really consider this wonderful psalm that we know so well, 139, um, 139, verse 13 through 16. I want you to listen to this with just fresh eyes this morning. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made in secret, intricately woven into the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed substance. See, we might wonder how the world has gotten so murderous and willing to destroy itself so quickly. Why are we so quick to destroy unborn life? Why it's regarded as just a clump of cells by so many in this nation. See, secular society has systematically devalued human life. So it's a little wonder that all kinds of murder are on the rise. Because secular society simply doesn't value human life and it increases the murder rate. And when we see that reflected, what is really reflecting is what happens in a society when it departs from the moral standards of Scripture. We have cheapened the value of life. I heard this from pastor one time and it just really stuck with me how we put this the cheapening of life and we may think that that happens outside of these walls but he placed it in this context we were, were willing to fight at the front doors of an abortion clinic for that life that hasn't been born but how many of us are willing to stand in the back door to tell the person exiting who made a wrong decision and tell them that they are also image bearers of God. Regardless of the decision that they did, they are also bearers of God's image. But yet we like to slide that little slider of value of life sometimes. And yet what we see here in Psalm 139 is the fact that regardless of how I feel about somebody, regardless of their actions that maybe go against what I would desire, they are still bearers of God's image. The fact that this verse doesn't specify who not to murder, but it simply says, you shall not murder it means that all human life at any stage of development in any condition of viability is to be considered intrinsically sacred and should never be taken on the basis of the will of another human being. Amen? This is why when, when, when it says if you kill somebody, the fitting penalty is that you're put to death. And it was reaffirmed by Moses. If we just go from Exodus 20, just a, a chapter over Exodus 21 in the verse 12, uh, it says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. 
we saw that a little bit of that. The fact that it calls that the uh, um, the 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 penalty of death for someone who has murdered eye for eye, tooth for a tooth. Now, this same passage, I think it's 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 important to know what this passage is not talking about, because we may have had a different translation. We grew up with a different understanding of it and thinking that anybody who is killed falls under this. But the Bible actually makes provisions that I want to share with you. For example, in verse 13, it says, but if he did not lie in wait for him, that means it wasn't a premeditated act of murder, but accidental, not deliberate. Look what it says. Um, this is actually uh, right there in verse 13. I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. So the law established these cities of refuge, and we find this in Numbers chapter 35. And there were places of asylum for people that served as asylum for those who had unwillingly, accidentally caused uh, manslaughter. And so they were to be taken there so they could be safe until a judgment was reached. And if this person was found not guilty, it wasn't premeditated action. They were able to live the rest of their lives in these cities of refuge. And the reason for that is because God knew the heart of man. He knew that man can be vengeful. He knew that uh, that person could be sought out by someone who wanted to exact some kind of retribution. So these cities of refuge existed. Now, notice that the death penalty actually applied to several other kinds of crime, not just unintentional death. Um, verse 15 says, whoever strikes his father or mother shall be put to death. Verse uh, 16 says, whoever steals a man and sells him shall be put to death. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. So the, the, the sixth commandment did not rule out capital punishment. Um, people who had committed crimes that were worthy of death, the law itself prescribed, prescribed that. So it doesn't mean capital punishment. Second, it does not mean killing in the time of war. Um, we, we see that it didn't rule out killing during the acts of war when the war was for a just cause. We, we see this in our nation. Uh, our troops um, who are sent have been sent overseas to fight against terrorism. Scripture recognizes that sort of killing as legitimate killing. Why? Because God himself considered it an act of justice against an evil aggressor. In fact, when God gave the law, he himself expressly commanded the Israelites to wage war and kill those Canaanite tribes that had defiled the land through idolatry, through human sacrifices, and all these other evil things that they were doing. He told them, wage war against them and destroy them. How is this justifiable? How can we say, well, Um, God, why would you say that and, and then tell, order them to wage war? Well, killing in war is never portrayed by the law of God as murder. An act of war against an evil aggressor is an act of justice. And we see that, and I'm not going to read it, but you can read the instructions that God gave the Israelites in, in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. So that is not what the sixth commandment is about. And it doesn't contradict what God said about the sixth commandment. 
Um, Exodus 22 verse 2 actually talks about another exemption to this in which it says, if a thief is found breaking in and is struck so that he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. This is talking about self-defense. In other words, if someone's committing an unlawful act that threatens your life or your safety, even your family's safety, it is no sin to use violence to try and stop him. And if he were to suffer some kind of life-threatening injuries, the Bible doesn't consider that an act of murder. The scripture actually recognizes it as self-defense, as valid and lawful. But it says that you are not to be the one who exacts justice. Look at Romans 13. Romans 13 says that that's why God placed government rulers and their appointed deputies to wield the sword lawfully. Romans 13, chapter 4 says, For he is, talking about the servants, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he's the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoing. So in other words, they're doing what God has expressly ordained them to do. So we've looked at what is not murder, what this commandment is not talking about, but what is it talking about? I'm so glad you asked. I want to get to a little bit to the heart of it. Murder is not just an act, but an attitude. See, most of us understand murder as this literal thing. And, 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 and we, 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 we kind of feel like we've, we've never committed it. And thus, um, it's not really a serious temptation for, for us. When God says you shall not murder, it also means that he hates and forbids not only the act of murder, but also any evil motive that might cause murder. Why? Because those two things are what lead to murder. Hateful attitudes such as anger, malice, bitterness, and envy. You could almost say this, that hateful attitudes are the beginning of murder. And if they're allowed to develop unhindered, those attitudes will end in murder. James 4, chapter uh, verse 1 through 2 says this, this, is what causes quarrels and fights among you. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain So what is it that first sets murder in motion? Evil thoughts, improper anger, unwholesome desire, envy, hatred, and other thoughts and attitudes just like that. All of these things are forbidden in this commandment because they can result in murder, even if murder was not the uh, original intention. And he's saying it's not just the act, but also the seeds of it, the very inception of it. 
And how do we know this? You're like, well, how did you, how in the world did you get there? Well, Jesus himself interpreted this commandment in Matthew chapter 5. And there is no higher authoritative source we could go to for understanding the depth of this meaning than the lawgiver himself. So here's what he says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. He says this, he says, You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is will be liable to judgment. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, that's the word, raka, will be liable to the hell of fire. Let's just dissect that for just a, a few minutes. Because the, the rabbinical interpretation of this law was based on just the literal meaning of it. A very minimalistic approach to the law. It forbids murder, and that's all there is to know. But they reasoned. I'm not murdering, but that doesn't say I can't hate my enemy. It doesn't say I can't say mean things to him. It doesn't say I can't torture him or torment him. And so they, they justified their evil attitudes and their verbal abuse and other kinds of evil actions against people they hated because after all, they weren't breaking the commandment. Jesus talks here to them and he says, you have, in effect, broken the sixth commandment. And you put yourself in danger of judgment, not only if you commit the act, but also if you're angry with your brother without good cause. And he says this, it's tantamount to murder because anger leads to murder. And, and, and let me make this simple, uh, this observation as well, that there is a godly kind of anger. We call it righteous indignation. We saw it, Jesus himself displayed it when he turned over tables and he drove out the money changers out of the temple courts. And, 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 and he did it because they had made his father's house into a den of thieves. So there was no selfish motive behind it. It was because God's glory was being defiled, not murderous anger, but it was righteous indignation for it. Even the Apostle Paul writes about righteous anger, Ephesians 4.26. And he says this, be angry, sin not, and let not the sun go down upon your wrath. And don't give place to the devil. So Paul here gives us two characteristics of righteous anger. Number one, it's short-lived. What does that mean? It means that you don't let the sun go down upon it. It lives a short life. You don't let it brew in your heart. And then he says also, don't give any room for Satan. He says, for Satan may employ it for evil purposes. Be angry and don't sin. Don't get placed. Don't let him use your anger for evil purposes. That is the kind of anger that Jesus forbade in Matthew 5, 22, was the anger without a just cause. Anger for selfish motives, like resentment. 
It's the kind of anger that makes us want to hurt someone. Jesus said it brings the same guilt on the soul as a full-fledged act of deliberate killing. Same guilt. But now, not just attitude. We look not just actions, but attitude. And now next, not just attitude, but words. So when you look at that verse 22, Matthew 5, 22, look at what it says. It says, whosoever shall say to his brother, you fool, that's the word raka, shall be in danger of the council. Now I looked this up. I looked up what this word actually meant, and it's an Aramaic word, and it literally means, you ready for this? It means blockhead. Blockhead. Please. If uh, Gio comes up to me and asks, why did the people start using that word around the church? Please, please do not point at me. But that's literally what it means. It's just, it means dull. It means pretty close to just calling someone stupid. Um, it, it, it's, it was common use in Jesus' day as a term of abuse. Probably something that we could just hurl at someone who may be driving a little slowly on the highway. Maybe someone that um, cut you off on your way to church this morning. Um, And Jesus is saying this. He's saying that even that mild sort of road rage is morally tantamount to murder. When you lose your temper at someone over petty or trivial personal offenses, you are revealing that you have murder in your heart. And he says this, he takes it so seriously that he says this to them, you're in danger of the council. What does that mean? The council here refers to the Sanhedrin, and it was the court that had the authority to have someone stoned. He's not just saying this is a petty sin to call someone a blockhead. He's actually telling them, he's making the point that this disposition of anger that causes you to call someone a contemptuous name is the same disposition that causes you to commit murder. And he makes the person who commits it worthy of stoning and eternal punishment. So it doesn't matter if you commit murder with it or if you just call the guy on the freeway, a moron. It's the same murderous heart. And that's a frightening thought, isn't it? Are you starting to get the picture? It's impossible to live up to the standards set by these Ten Commandments. And that's the whole point. It's, if that's how you feel about hearing this, then you're getting it. You are. Because the law was given to show us our guilt. And we, we dare not approach the, the, the judgment seat of Christ with the arrogance, same arrogance of the rich young ruler that boasted about how he had kept all of the commandments. Because you understand and you see that there is no way that we actually measure up. And that's supposed to do one thing. It's supposed to drive us to God 
in search of grace. The publican in Luke 18 said this when he cried, God, be merciful to me. Even though I haven't murdered anyone. No, no, no. He says, be merciful to me. Why? Because I'm a sinner. I am a sinner. And our only hope for salvation is the mercy and grace of God. Amen? So how, how do we get to this place? Let me read this to you. This is Romans 13, 9 through 10. It says, it says, the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandments are summed up by this. First, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. We saw it in Romans 12 as well earlier during our time of worship. He says, because love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. So after all, what is the opposite of murder? It says here that it's love. Love for your neighbor. And that's like all the commandments. It's the whole point of this. Because while the murderer takes the life of another person due to selfishness, the one who truly loves lays down his life for another, as Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 13. John 15, 13. And he proved it by what he did. In fact, 1 John 3, 16 says this, and I love the, uh, the King James Version. It's, I love just how poetic it sounds. 1 John 3, 16, hereby perceive we the love of God. Because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Look at what verse 17 says. He says, but whosoever has this world's good and sees his brother has need and shuts his heart of compassion for him, how does God's love abide in him? This takes me to one last thing. Not just the act. We don't just value life because we're bearers of God's image. Um, not just are we murderers through our acts, we can be murderers through our attitude, not just attitude, also our words. But here what he says also, he says we can have a murderous heart when we disregard or when we neglect the love for others or the needs of others. And sometimes we see misery, we see needs in the world that at times it can overwhelm us. But if we shut up our hearts of compassion, Scripture says that we are also guilty. He says in verse 18, right there, 1 John chapter 3, My children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, um, but in deed and in truth. Are you starting to feel the guilt? of having violated this commandment. I know I do. But you know what? Along with the bad news, there is some amazing news too because there is a remedy. And it's the salvation that God offers us through Christ. And this is where the good news of the gospel comes in. Because there is forgiveness even for sins as cold-blooded murder and cold-hearted disregard for your neighbor. Jesus, who is the one who perfectly fulfilled the law, he paid the price for the sinner's guilt 
knowing fully well that you and I were not capable of even holding these Ten Commandments up to the standard. And, and he, imputes, he imputes to them, to us, right, as a Savior, the merit of his obedience. He takes away the guilt of the sin in the process. That's quite an exchange that he bore his guilt in his body on the cross and he turned the most abominable act of murder that was ever committed, his death, into the atoning work of grace. You know how amazing that is, that because he was murdered, he bought forgiveness for murderers. I want to finish with this. There is no more beautiful picture for me personally than the two thieves that were hanging on the crosses next to Jesus. And it tells us that these two thieves, they were not just common thieves. Common thieves weren't just crucified. But Mark 15 tells us, 15.7, that, that Barabbas, Barabbas had committed murder in the insurrection. And so these men, because he was supposed to be in that middle cross, and these men around him, we, we can kind of uh, get to the point that they were his accomplices. And so the fact that they were crucified when thieves were seldom crucified kind of points to the fact that these men were probably guilty of murder as well. And furthermore, we are shown the darkness in their hearts because they joined in with the rest of the crowd, insulting Jesus, mocking him. And they joined in the abuse. But here's the redemption. That as the hours went by, one of them had a change of heart. And he looks in Luke chapter 23 and verse 40, and he says, do you not fear God, he says to the other man, because we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. See, he confessed both his guilt and Jesus' sinlessness. And he tells the Lord at that moment, remember me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I love verse 43 when Jesus says, I say to you today, you will with me, be with me in paradise. I don't know about you, and I hope that this brings comfort to you. Because when I look into the mirror of this commandment and I understand that everything the law of God requires of me, I'm forced to confess that my own heart is dark and as sinful as this murderer. And that my only hope is forgiveness available through Christ. And if you can look at this commandment and excuse yourself because you think you've never committed cold-blooded murder, you've missed the point completely. But if you can understand that this law requires more than just abstaining from the acts, if you can see that it requires us to confess your guilt like the thief on the cross did, there is hope for you in Christ. There is hope for all of us. The one who was murdered bringing redemption for the murderers. And so I don't know where you are. I don't know what acts you have done in your life. I don't know if you needed to hear this, but I think you need to hear the fact that we are all bearers of God's image.
and we have all fallen short. But there is hope in Christ and salvation is available for you. I don't want you to leave this morning. If you need to be assured of this, if you need to take that next step, how, how can I be forgiven? We are here ready to lead you in those steps, either publicly or even if you prefer privately, we have people in the back with name tags that are ready to pray for you out in the foyer. Would you pray with me this morning as we close? Lord, we are guilty. We have murderous hearts. We, we're condemned, every one of us, by this very commandment. And we look to you for grace and mercy. And we thank you that that grace and mercy is available in Christ. My prayer is that you would give each of us faith to lay hold of it and to do it for Christ's glory. We pray this in his name. Amen.